Pamela, can you present your patient? A few months ago, I met a 35-year-old nurse. She's African-American. She, on routine mammogram, was found to have an abnormality and eventually underwent a lumpectomy. And she was found to have a 1.5-centimeter invasive ductal cancer. It was moderately differentiated. There was lymphovascular invasion. It was ER positive, PR positive, and her tenue was not overexpressed, period. There was no family history of ovarian or breast cancer. Her surgeon sent off an oncotype. She had no history of ovarian or breast cancer You in said family. she was a nurse? What kind of nursing did she do? She was an OB nurse. OB. What was her support system? Excellent. A very supportive husband. So, Chuck, we have the situation that's pretty common, maybe a very common adjuvant situation of a patient with a node negative, ER positive, HER2 negative tumor. Can you talk a little bit about how you think through those kinds of situations and anything more you want to know about this patient? I don't think so. I think that basically Oncotype has changed the way we look at this group of individuals. The gut reaction, of course, would be that she's 35. African-American women tend to have more aggressive disease across the board. It's moderately differentiated. It's not a well-differentiated tumor. So without an Oncotype score, I would certainly be thinking about some form of adjuvant chemotherapy in addition to hormonal therapy and in addition to radiation that she'll need since she had a lumpectomy. What was her attitude about the possibility of getting chemotherapy? She was reluctant at first, but then as a few weeks went by, she was scared. Did you just say whether she had children or not? She had two children. How old were they? Ten and eight. So now when she got to you, she had already had an archetype the surgeon had sent it? Right. And why don't you talk about what it showed and the discussion you had with her? So the Oncotype score came back 14, which is in the low-risk category of trial, placing her at 9% risk of distant recurrence. And one of the questions was, would you have sent off this test in the first place in this woman? After much discussion, she elected to disregard the results and undergo adjuvant chemotherapy. Ruth, any thoughts? With an Oncotype of 14, obviously her benefit from chemotherapy is going to be rather low. I mean, she would be a great person to put on the Taylor X study even at this point because there's a 50-50 randomization between chemotherapy or not. I know we certainly all do worry about these younger patients, but I think overall, at least in the data we have so far, it does appear that Oncotype does kind of trump age, at least in older patients. I agree, though, with you. I think though somebody this young, I would be a little leery of not giving her chemotherapy. But I think if she said she didn't want it and she didn't want to go Taylor X, I would probably be fine just giving her tamoxifen. Chuck, if she is going to get chemotherapy, it sounds like even in spite of this oncotype, she's rethinking it. What kinds of regimens would you be thinking about? I probably would think about taxotere and cytoxan, probably just given for four doses. She's a relatively low risk. I feel exactly as Ruth did concerning not feeling badly if she elected not to take chemotherapy. I think the benefit is likely to be low. What's your experience? Are you putting patients on the Taylor X study? We're trying to. trying to, yeah. What happens when you talk to people about it? Most of the women are polarized in one direction or another. Either they really want chemotherapy or they really don't want chemotherapy. And most of the patients that I've approached, I have not been able to get randomized. Kurt, I see you shaking your head. I think it's one of the most interesting trials that we do. It is clearly the most difficult consent of any trial that we've dealt with. And the one thing that sort of helped us is, now I'll say to people, well, you know, if you're very high, it's very easy. And if you're very low, it's very easy. And if you're in the middle, I really don't have a really good idea of what to do. 
And so that's why I think this is just, this is exactly a good trial. But as you said, the problem is people tend to come in with very preconceived ideas. Either they want it no matter what it is, or they don't want it no matter what it is. I found that people who agree the Taylor X trial have like an altruistic attitude. They want to do it for the future of research and the future of women. So you've had people who... I, I'm about a half and half, but half people say no and half people say yes. Hmm. Did you present it to this woman? Yes, and she really was adamant about having chemotherapy. Hmm. Interesting. So, so it's interesting. She was low, but within the Taylor study, she would be considered intermediate, Right. You can still accrue with this score, with right, the Right, without the treatment. But the randomization, is she considered intermediate? Yes. Right, so she could have... So what kind of chemo is she getting? We haven't really uptaken the TC regimen too much. So in this kind of situation, with stage one with ear-positive cancer, we're still using CMF. Is she on it now? Yes. How's she doing? Great. You mentioned also to me about her vitamin D level. Right. I've been doing that more routinely now since information came out that there's a higher risk of relapse with vitamin D deficiency, especially in Hispanic and African-American females. I don't know if that will translate to years of survival benefit, but it's so easy to correct that I've been checking it. And what was hers? Hers was six. And what's the normal lower limit? The normal, there's a wide range, 25 to about 70. But I think optimum, there's a debate about it, but it's about 50, 40 to 50. What's your take, Ruth, on the vitamin D thing? It was, you know, Pam Goodwin presented some data on that. What do you think about it? Well, I mean, I think that's a controversial area because there certainly are some studies that have shown it's a predictor of poor outcome and other studies that haven't been so conclusive. I mean, I think that was an interesting study. It was a small number of patients. I think it makes sense that we should have normal vitamin D levels. So I think that in general, it makes sense to check it and I think replace if it is decreased. Any hypotheses that's been put forth in terms of why this would affect cancer recurrence? I'm not sure of any per se. Presumably it might relate some way to development of bone metastasis, but I actually don't know. I don't know if Chuck, if you have any hypothesis on why this is. Now, this lady is premenopausal, actively menstruating. You're going to give her tamoxifen. Chuck, what about the possibility in a patient like this of getting a bisphosphonate, and specifically zoledronic acid, and what were your thoughts about the Austrian trial that was presented at ASCO and this patient subset looking at that in terms of cancer recurrence? Well, we've been very successful getting patients onto the Southwest Oncology Group 307 trial. And that trial randomizes between zoledronic acid, abandronate, and clodronate. And it's a no-brainer trial. Number one, patients are going to lose bone mineral density when they're on chemotherapy. And actually, there are data that patients on tamoxifen who are premenopausal actually also lose bone mineral density. So I would offer this lady the 307 SWOG trial. There are now four trials, including the one from Deal in Germany, the one from Trevor Pauls, also the Austrian trial. And I'm told, and I haven't seen the data, an analysis of ZFAST and ZOFAST. So there are now four trials that seem to indicate that aside from just helping bone mineral density, that there may be a positive effect in terms of reducing recurrence. Getting back to Oncotype, Ruth, what were your thoughts about the issue of utilizing Oncotype in patients with node-positive tumors? There was some data that was presented at last San Antonio meeting. Can you talk about what was presented and whether you think that's something that maybe could be integrated into practice right now? 
Yeah, certainly. So what they did essentially was they went back to the SWOG study in which patients with node positive hormone receptor positive cancers and postmenopausal patients were randomized between tamoxifen alone, tamoxifen either with CAF either given sequentially or concurrently. And these were patients with any number of lymph nodes positive. And what they found was that in the lower current score cancers, it appeared that tamoxifen was very effective. But conversely, there wasn't a statistical benefit for chemotherapy in that group of patients. The other side of that, of course, is that in the patients that had high recurrence score cancers, it looked like, just as we'd seen in B20, that those patients actually got quite a marked benefit from chemotherapy. So it really mirrored what we'd seen in the B20 data. The problem, is, of course, is the numbers are small, and that's the criticism that people have of this study. The problem is that there isn't another study out there that we can kind of look at to kind of confirm these results. So we're kind of left with what we have. I mean, I think it kind of just speaks to the biology of breast cancers that there may be breast cancers that biologically spread to the lymph nodes, but they're lower-grade cancers, they're highly estrogen receptor positive, they just don't get a lot of benefit from chemotherapy. The problem is that those cancers didn't do particularly well in this analysis. They had an event rate of about 40% at 10 years. But the issue, I think, here is that those events are probably going to occur anyway, whether you give the patients chemotherapy or not. So I have sent it on some patients. For example, I had a patient who had like a grade one, two lymph node positive, ER positive cancer. Her recurrence score came back at a nine. Now, I would have been fairly comfortable if she didn't want to get chemotherapy, but the standard of care, I think, still is to give chemotherapy, and she opted to get some chemotherapy. The other thing I think you can take away from doing it in the node positive setting is maybe thinking about your choice of chemotherapy. So based on the ECOG, Lori Goldstein analysis of her AC versus AT study, I think if you have a node positive cancer that has a low recurrence score, it would be probably very reasonable to treat with maybe four cycles of TC, for example, but maybe be more aggressive with the higher recurrence score ones. So that's kind of the way I've interpreted it. Chuck, what's your take on this? And usually we think about oncotyping the patient on the fence. And maybe the surgeon, before he ordered this test on your patient, Pam, should have said, you know, is it going to change what you do? And maybe she would have said no and could have, you know, saved some resources. But I would imagine there must be plenty of people with node-positive disease that are on the fence, not that many nodes, older patient, comorbidity. Are there any situations where you're using node-positive patients, Chuck? He said the only time really is when there is somebody who is very reluctant to take chemotherapy, and I would use it to try to hope that it's going to confirm the biology. The thing that's troubling is that it's sort of a no-win result if you have a 40% relapse rate. Whether you give chemotherapy or not, it still makes you very nervous. That 40% is not really totally true, however, because that's all events, and that's not distant relapse-free survival. Also, they didn't have a taxane. And it did not have a taxane. And so one could justify the use of chemotherapy in the low-recurrence node-positive patient by saying, well, because an adriamycin-based regimen did not work, and with all of the caveats that we all know bringing adriamycin into question at the moment in breast cancer, I think a regimen like TC would be an interesting regimen. The last thing I want to get your response to is the issue of hormonal therapy in premenopausal patients. Now, this patient's on the lower end of risk. Pam's thinking about or planning to give her tamoxifen, What about ovarian ablation suppression, Ruth? That was part of what was presented with the Austrian trial. Are there any situations where you might do that in a premenopausal patient? And if so, would you combine it with tamoxifen, with an AI, or just do it by itself? 
I believe that for now the standard of care has to be five years of tamoxifen. I think we have really no data to support using ovarian ablation. When you look at the overview analysis, tamoxifen is just as effective in premenopausal patients as it is in postmenopausal patients. And the Austrian study was interesting because, as you know, there was no difference between a natural or tamoxifen in these patients. And if anything, although it wasn't statistically significant, the event rate was actually a little bit lower in the tamoxifen treated patients compared to the anastrozole treated patients. So I think that trial really speaks to the fact that we really shouldn't be rushing out and ablating ovaries without a reason to do it. And I think it really confirms that the soft trial is very important. And that obviously would be a choice for this patient where she'd get randomized between tamoxifen, ovarian ablation with tamoxifen or with an aromatase inhibitor. I think one of the things that perhaps we have to be careful about if we want to use an aromatase inhibitor in premenopausal patients is, do we really know how quickly you actually ablate their ovaries using an LHRH agonist? And that may potentially maybe affect their outcome. And of course, the last thing you want to do is have them on an ineffective therapy. So the only case where I might use an aromatase inhibitor would be if somebody really needed hormonal therapy and absolutely couldn't tolerate tamoxifen. But apart from that, I don't think there's any instance that I would do it. Chuck, what about the multiply node positive premenopausal patient or maybe HER2 positivity? Anything that would get you to use anything other than tamoxifen? No, I don't think that there are hard data. Everybody goes back to the old Matt Ellis data in the neoadjuvant setting where it seemed that though there was a very great difference between tamoxifen and letrozole. If you look at the big 98 data, there is no difference in very large patient sets among the hair to new positive patients between tamoxifen and at least one aromatase inhibitor. So I don't alter my hormonal approach on the basis of hair 2 positivity. Steve? I have one question. What I've been doing with all of my patients on tamoxifen now is doing the CYP2D6 mm-hmm. genotyping. And on occasion, you get these poor metabolizers. And with one of those patients, would you, for a premenopausal woman who needs hormonal therapy, would you consider then in those cases an AI? I would. Yeah, I think I haven't really sent that very much because I'm not absolutely certain what to do with the information. I do ask them if they get hot flashes because I think that's kind of a surrogate. I think that's an excellent question. And I think, unfortunately, we don't know the answer for sure at this time point. But if she's really a poor metabolizer, I guess I better go back and say that maybe that is somebody. If, if somebody else had sent it, that you might want to think about not using tamoxifen. I could add something because I've been sending all my tamoxifen patients very recently. And you got to be careful because, number one, you got to find out where you're sending it. And number two, how you're ordering it. Because you get back a three or four page report with an intermediate result and you don't know what to do with it. Fortunately, I contacted Mayo Clinic and there's Dr. Getz. Matthew Getz there, who is sort of an expert in this field, and he's going to be presenting in San Antonio. So he sort of helped me through this intermediate metabolizer thing. But if you send your specimen off to Mayo Clinic, you've got to specify that you want to sip 2D6 specifically for tamoxifen phenotyping. That way they give you an analysis that makes some sense on the intermediate metabolizers. And what's the bottom line about how you figure out what to do with the intermediates? The intermediates, I got a lovely one-page letter from Matthew when I sent him a report that I didn't have a clue how to interpret. And he basically said, for the poor metabolizers, there's a 3.6-fold increase in relapse. And for the intermediate, it's a 1.6-fold increase in relapse compared with the good metabolizers. 
and that for the intermediate metabolizers, the general recommendation is just to avoid other drugs that are going to mess around with the CYP2D6, but that it is not a contraindication to giving tamoxifen. Steve? Just continuing on the stage two patient who we gave five years of tamoxifen to, who's premenopausal. What do we do after five years? She hasn't had her period since her chemotherapy. She's gotten five years of tamoxifen. She's stage two, so and she's hormone positive. There's a longer risk of her developing disease. Do we give her an aromatase inhibitor, and how do we judge if she's really menopausal? And Chuck, this whole issue of long-term therapy of the premenopausal patient is one of the most common questions we get from docs in terms of what Steve just said, a patient stops having her periods with chemotherapy. How do you approach these patients when they get to the five-year point, particularly if they're node positive? Well, if you have a node positive patient, I think that extended adjuvant therapy could very well be warranted. And if the patient is amenorrheic, I would start with the seromestradiol level because even though it's a very imperfect test, you can't use the LH and FSH if she's still on tamoxifen because the pituitary views tamoxifen as an estrogen. So you have the anomalous situation of low LH and FSH and low estradiol. I would monitor the serum estradiol level on a regular basis, even though it's an imperfect test, and I would put that patient on an AI according to the MA17 You wouldn't wait to see what the levels were off? I mean, I have a patient who had three years I tested her levels, but she was still on tamoxifen. She had low estradiol and low FSH, and I said, you know what? She's 46 now. She just came off of five years of tamoxifen. The last visit I measured levels, they're both low, of course. And you can wait till she's off of tamoxifen for a while. And if everything is the way you should expect it to be, in other words, high LH and FSH and low estradiol, you can put her on, but I would monitor it. Still monitor Yeah, I would probably monitor it every three months if she's 46 years old. Because we all know about the one case of the patient who was amenorrheic and got pregnant. With Do you factor the, age into this? I mean, if they're 38 versus they're 52, you approach this situation differently? Probably. I mean, if she's 38, the likelihood is that she is going to regain menses. And so then you're kind of between a rock and a hard place in terms of knowing what to do. I mean, are you then going to put her on an LHRH and then put her on an AI? I don't know. Fortunately, hadn't had to face that. It's a hard situation. The good thing about this patient is you've already given her standard of care. And I think one of the things that we know about aromatase inhibitors is that if you're not sure if they're postmenopausal or not, very often by starting them on an AI, you'll find out because they actually have a period because of the stimulatory effects on the ovaries. So, I mean, I think there's probably not a major downside if you're kind of in the patient where you're not certain of. But I think one of the things that we need to think about going forward is we all know that estrogen receptor positive cancers are not all the same. So really, I think the ones that we need to target with the extended adjuvant therapy are probably the luminal A types that recur kind of indefinitely 20, 30 years down the line, whereas the luminal B types that kind of have a much higher recurrence rate at the front end, maybe they're not cancers that you need to continue the therapy on. And of course, we don't know the answers to this, but I imagine hopefully we'll get this over the next several years from well, some of the molecular profiling. How would you translate luminal A and B into practice? 
What are you looking well, for? I think, that's, I think we can't. I think it's very hard to do it. I think luminal B is pretty synonymous with high recurrence score cancers. Well, and how you, do you identify a patient with that? Is that HER2 positive or what? Well, I think HER2 positive for sure would probably fit into the luminal B bracket. But unfortunately, of course, there's a lot of other ones that also fit in there, ones that have incrementally less estrogen and progesterone receptor and probably incrementally more HER2 receptor. I'm not saying that we can define these right now, although I think probably if you have a high recurrence score cancer, the patient's fine at five years, if you've done Oncotype on them, they're probably a patient that maybe is not going to get so much benefit of extended adjuvant therapy versus a low recurrence score cancer, which they're not synonymous with luminal B, but they are a little bit more like them. Maybe they're the cancers that we need to identify and continue on treatment. But we don't know this. And I think with molecular profiling on some of the studies we have, hopefully we will get some answers to this. But as you know, from MA17, they looked at ER positive, PR positive versus ER positive, PR negative. So if you use PR negativity as like a luminal B phenotype, the benefit of the extended adjuvant therapy was only in the ER positive, PR positive. So the luminal A types, if you like. So, I mean, I think it's just hypothesis generating more than anything else, but I think it's something that we need to address.